0: Welcome everybody, I am Rachel Levy-Lesser. And I am Stephanie Goldstein, and this is Life's Accessories, a podcast about accessories, clothing, fashion, and the stories behind them. We are two friends who love to accessorize and who remember what we wore on pretty much every meaningful occasion, and that is what we love to talk about. You can follow us on Instagram at Life's Accessories Podcast and also on Facebook. You can also email us at Life's Accessories podcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or accessory suggestions. And
1: if you like what you're listening to, we would love it for you to share this podcast with a friend and rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. Also, do not forget to subscribe so that you
0: never miss an episode. Hello to our listeners. Today we are excited to welcome Kiki Smith to the podcast. So just who is Kiki? She is a professor at the theater department at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, as well as a professional costume and set designer. She sounds I'm excited.
1: awesome. Yes. I
0: first learned about Kiki, I didn't quite know
1: about her until mm-hmm. my cousin, when I say my cousin, my mom's first cousin, Paula Dietz, who is a writer, and she went to Smith College, sent me this book in the mail, Real Clothes, Real Lives, 200 Years of What Women Wore which is a collection from Smith College Historical Clothing Collection. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk to Kiki about this book. So then, It's a beautiful, we cool book. A beautiful book. We did a deep dive on <laughs> all things Kiki. She is the director of the Smith College Historical Clothing Collection, like I mentioned from the book, that was founded 42 years ago by a student and is based there in the basement of the
0: theater building near the costume shop. I so want to visit. Do you think she'll oh. let us visit? I was just thinking field trip. Could this be a life accessories field trip? We got to go.
1: I yeah. think so. So the collection now numbers over 4,000 pieces.
0: It's incredible. And
1: her book, which I mentioned, Real Clothes, Real Lives, 200 Years of What Women Wore, which was published by Rizzoli. It's on my coffee table, by the, the way. The
0: quintessential
1: coffee book publisher, right? Totally. And <laughs> this book is on my coffee table. and. Yep. It's a great conversation piece. It came out in September of 2023, and it documents garments and accessories that are what she calls real clothes worn by real women for all aspects of their lives. It has
0: developed a focus on the uniforms of women's many roles and jobs. I love that. I always feel like I have my uniform. Do you? Like I put the same things together
1: all the time because
0: it just works. And I feel like we have a
1: uniform based on the different parts of our lives that we're in, right? Like you yes, can look totally. back on your 20s or your 30s yes. or your 40s.
0: Yeah, completely. Very- Kiki is also a professional costume and set designer working with theater companies, including Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts, and the Talking Band in New York, and received an Obie Award for a production with that company, which is very impressive. And it also turns out, that Kiki is an alum of Smith College with advanced degrees in, guess what, theater design from the University of Virginia and the University of Texas in Austin. Let's welcome her now. Hi, Kiki, and welcome to Life's Accessories.
2: I am delighted. Life is full of the best accessories.
0: So true, Kiki. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to get right to the question that we and our listeners have on our minds, which is... What accessory would you like to share with us today? I'm going to stretch
2: the boundaries and share two. We love that. The first one is personal. It's my own. And it's part of my (laughs) aim in life that I hope on my tombstone, it says, Kiki Smith, she had good earrings. This has been not with any determination on my part, but a constant in my life of sussing out interesting pairs of things that put on either side of my head might give some interesting vibrations. One year, my husband gave me two sets of dice, black on white and a white on black. Of course, I glue them and make them earrings. So I have the number seven and 11 on this side so that I always have some good luck going out, thanks to my husband. I also don't have pierced ears. So that means I can buy little backs and the world is made, best accessories nearly are made with glue guns. The ones I have on right now are two of my favorites. When my son was quite small and very interested in equally small uh, toys, like little Oh, Star Wars characters!
0: Yes, my brother had those. I remember yes. those. all of that. Yeah, and then I, I stepped on a few of those in my day. That's yeah. the point. I told him that if they weren't
2: picked up, and I stepped on them with bare feet, they were mine. So I am wearing <gasps> six of various kinds of powerful is gun-laden creatures on my ears, wow. um, glued on there. And it's a wonderful, it makes people sit up and take you seriously.
1: <laughs> oh my God. I love this story. This First of all, amazing. we can quote you on everything you've all said. All things, far, everything. everything. But I was a little surprised to learn that you don't have pierced ears mm-hmm. just because your accessories are your earrings. So obviously you're a clip-on kind of a gal this a decision not to get your ears pierced pretty much
2: young when the craze first started to happen and my mother of course had nothing but clip-ons and they were pretty good ones and i wear a lot of them now and i somehow got it into my brain that my father who was a surgeon offered to pierce our ears but my mother and sister and i said only if you get us diamond studs to go in them. They March. never materialized. <laughs> As a result, I just keep on keeping on with clip-on earrings. And no, if you adjust them a little bit, they don't really hurt. Right. They're fine. Are they the
0: clips or are they the screwbacks?
2: Ideally clips. Those stay yeah. on better when you're pulling okay. pullovers off or hats and scarves off and on. But it's tension in there. you got to keep track of those guys and uh, make sure you don't lose. them. Are you still making earrings? Oh, yeah, of course. I'm always on the lookout for a wonderful pair of buttons that might be oxymoronic, Mm -hmm. (laughs) ironic on my head, but a good contrast. And then, I don't know, a little glitz is great. A lot of this, of course, is a little theater for... my classes when I teach because I warn the students you can keep a barometer of where I am by my ears I come into class and they're all looking at my ears
1: speaking of teaching we pre-recorded your bio and that you've been a professor at Smith College for 49 years do we have that right Mm -hmm. obviously you love what you do can you tell us what prompted you to become a professor in the first place
2: well I went to Smith as an undergraduate and then had found myself in theater design without any real serious study of it. So I went on to graduate programs. One was a master's and one was an MFA. The school I went to, the University of Texas, Hook Horns, mostly geared their MFAs to go into education, into college level. Mm -hmm. And my last year getting my degree, my advisor here at Smith called me Said he was going on sabbatical for a year. Did I want to come for a year? I thought I'd think about it. Nope. He said, you got to tell me right now. So I said, yes. And the man who was the costume designer didn't get rehired. So I'd been teaching both set design and costume design. So I just slipped right in and have been really fortunate to make it all the way through tenure, the whole nine yards. There are not many costume designers who get this opportunity at all, particularly now. So I'm more than grateful uh, and appreciative for the opportunity.
0: That's amazing. So now you teach courses on costume design and -hmm. topics such as design for the dance, 20th century fashion designers, and making theater illusion with costume construction, masks, and makeup. Can you tell us more about those classes, how you come up with them? your method of teaching, and what your students are experiencing? Some
2: of those specialty courses I haven't had a chance to teach in a while. Yeah. I find that the students here who are very bright and are willing to, if I can give them the right platform to take some leaps in their confidence about themselves, to explore and play. And that, to me is a quality that doesn't always last into adulthood, and I am very grateful to have the opportunity basically to play, which is a good part of the design process. But some students are much more verbally oriented, and this is a real stretch for them to think about how to build a mask, how to understand the the actual structure of our faces, never mind distort it in a mask. And so a lot of it works up to, in the second semester of costume design, into the topic called theatricality, which is the heart and soul of, to me, the joy of theater that can't be done in a film. Um, it can't be done on television. It's live. It's the f- memory I have of sitting in the audience, watching within a few months of the opening of Lion King with my son, about five years old, sitting on my lap and the two of us. <gasps> look at what was happening on stage. Every trope of theater was used. That it was so thrilling to be there live in a whole group, never mind having my son whose jaw was also hanging way down. You can't find it much better than that. I guess it's like going to a really good live concert. Mm. Anything I try to do is to get it back to um, exploration of what is thrilling and humanizing about a group of people being together and being surprised in a, in a positive way.
1: I'm glad you brought up The Lion King because I actually remember seeing that in the theater when it first came out. I was not five years old, I was in my 20s, but I, I went with my mom and I was like the little kid. And so was she really, because the costumes were just amazing. Yeah, Beyond. they are
0: awe-inspiring, that is they true. They really yes. are.
1: Yeah. Can we turn to your book, your beautiful Ooh. book, which is on both of our coffee tables. <laughs> And by the way, generates a lot of great conversations when people come over. Real clothes, real lives, 200 years of what women wore. The book came out earlier this year and you wrote in your preface that as a costume designer, you are also a hoarder because someday you might need something, which of course we can all relate to. I love that so much. We were wondering, how do you catalog and keep track of everything?
2: It's a challenge, and I'm not at all sure I do it very well. If I can get this collection to survive me and my hopeful retirement, whoever comes in who has any more professional training in archiving and managing museums probably will be horrified by some of the things I haven't done or have done. I had the great opportunity to work around some extraordinary scholars and museum people. I have to say that this collection at Smith started over 40 years ago by a student who loved the clothes that I had just pulled out of the regular costume stock in order to save them. They can't go on stage. They couldn't survive being on stage. And body sweats, all of that, would destroy them even faster. Mm. But I figured if I put them to one side, I could use them in class. I could use them for research purposes. And I took the students about four seconds to latch on to that. And one very determined student decided this ought to be a collection. And she packed up her two favorite garments that we had set aside in an acid-free box and hauled herself off to New York to first meet with Elizabeth Coleman, who was still then the curator at the Brooklyn Museum's collection. And then to Stella Blum, who was at that point the curator at the Met. And she wanted to find out from these two leaders, what should be the priorities? And she ended up spending part of her senior year writing a 350-page guide to how this collection should be run and raising money to fund interns to succeed her to do this. So let me tell you, those are big shoes to fill when you're trying to follow the path of, of Beth. And we also had, at that point, a person living in the area, in fact, working at Smith at other variety of jobs, who was at that point establishing herself as a, I consider her the foremost scholar of American women's dress. Unfortunately, not as well known as she should be. But Nancy has a mind like the proverbial steel trap, and she knows how things ought to be done. And she taught us how to Just do basic accessioning, how to do the tags, how to do a very basic cataloging system. And that's what we're still doing. Let me tell you, there's still a long way to go to make it adequate, but delightfully, we had access to minds like that who could
0: instruct us. Rach and I said in our intro that we think we need to take a field trip to see this. It sounds absolutely incredible. We'd love to learn from you about how you feel clothing can serve as a narrator for women's history or history in general. So maybe there's some examples you could share about styles or trends or the way garments were made that give us clues to where we were at a certain point in time. Are there things that stand out that that you love to talk about? There are a couple
2: of them, and actually, I'm going to start them with my second favorite accessory, okay. which is in the book. It's um, in a chapter called Rites of Passage. A few examples of maternity clothes, wedding, three wedding, quite distinct wedding dresses off within in the early 70s, within a three-year span of time, a little bit of mourning attire, and two fabulous Cassianera dresses. But the last item in this is a little corsage that's made up of pink rayon ribbons, a huge bloom of them Mm -hmm. and with tendrils hanging down. And uh, the bottom of each of those tendrils is wrapped around carefully a sugar cube. This came in with the papers of that were given to Smith to go into our one of our archive collections the papers of Eileen Clark Hernandez who ended up becoming the second president of the National Organization of Women after Betty Friedan but even before that she had been born in New York to Jamaican American parents went to Howard University, graduated in 1947. By 1964, President Lyndon Johnson appointed her as the only woman, and certainly probably the only person of color, to the newly established Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. She got so frustrated there, she quit. And she went on to do some extraordinary work on behalf of women of color and also women's rights. All of her papers from this very progressive person came in to Smith and a student who knew me was there helping to unpack them. And there was this bag of tissue paper holding this pile of ribbons and sugar cubes. (laughs) Excuse (laughs) me, no sugar cubes in an archives. I don't know what to do with it. Well, the student said, Let me take it to Kiki and let's see what we can find out. I didn't know what it was until I did a little research. That's the joy of getting things like this. You don't know about so much of people's lives. You can ask questions. I wonder how they celebrated birthday parties and transitions in their lives. On the other hand, if you get one of these things, and you do a little research, you find out that in the middle of the 20th century, there was a trend in the middle Atlantic states that girls would get a corsage on their birthday. And it turns out on your 10th birthday, you got 10 lollipops in your corsage, 11 gumdrops, 12 Tootsie Rolls, 13 pieces of bubble gum, 14 dog biscuits, and 15 oh. lifesavers and for your sweet 16th birthday you got sugar cubes. Here ah. is a mass of ribbons but opens up let's just say not that I can gather at all about the way young girls were being raised and kind of social expectations of being sweet and nice and occasions of rituals of rising into womanhood and it belongs to this woman and she saved it. That's another powerful piece to me. Mm -hmm. What did it mean to her? I don't know, but um, there's several pieces in the book where there's at least as much mystery about them as there is information we can glean, but asking the questions I still think is important to get a glimpse into the 99% of us whose clothes are never gonna be in museums. And we've bought them at Kmart's and Kroger's or made them and Mm -hmm. remade them and re-remade them.
1: As you can imagine this podcast, Life's Accessories, it's based on the premise that accessories and clothing and meaningful items from our closets and our homes can tell a story. I have to um, mention, as we record here, my cousin, Paula Dietz, who oh. introduced us to Kiki because she is a, a Smith graduate and has been involved in this project. And she to say has, the
2: least. To yeah. say the
1: least. And she's a writer for the New York Times. She's the editor of the Hudson Review. I know Paula will be listening to this. But she, I know just knowing her my whole life, has a- always talked and written about clothing as moments in history, particularly women in the 20th century. And she had mentioned to me one of her dresses, which I think was a gingham shirt dress, which is in the book, which she had explained to me. And I loved this, which was sort of frayed in, I'm not sure which elbow, because she leaned on it as she read her New York Times every morning. And I love that specificity of that. And just the trends in women's clothing over the years, particularly when you see how women have evolved from being at home to being in the workplace. I find it so fascinating. We talked a little bit about styles over the years and what they say about history. Do you think there are any styles that are perhaps in the book that have not come back yet, that will come back? Because as we know, everything comes back in style, right? And good for you for hoarding everything, because you're going to have it all.
0: You'll never say, I shouldn't have thrown that out. Oh, I have. Let me okay. tell you. How oh. many people have I known who said,
1: <laughs> oh,
2: I wish I'd saved? I was thinking this morning, I put on a wool turtleneck sweater and either it shrunk a bit because either my size has changed or I've washed it. But I just find myself pulling my sleeves up around my lower arm, mm-hmm. close to my elbow. And I thought about that and thought about that as a gesture that I think uh, 40 years ago, before we wore knits all the time, we didn't do that. (laughs) Our gestures didn't incorporate it. We wore shirts that either finished at the elbow or at the cuff. We might roll the cuff up, but pushing it up, having that literal elasticity about how we wear clothes, that's not an option. And let me tell you, when I have students who are cast in a play where they're going to wear quasi-period clothes, anything pre-1950, we have to get them in, of course, rehearsal garments because they can't believe how constricted we all were, in our arm movements, in our gestures, in so many ways, just the way we were expected to cross our legs or not. All of those rules of expression, of personal expression. So that makes me think, unless we just give up spandex, will we really ever go back to some of these styles? I don't know. I know there's a struggle between buying jeans with spandex and just plain denim and cotton because ecologically there's a difference. Maybe we could hope that one of the lessons is most everybody whose clothes are in here, those known and anonymous, they didn't have very many clothes at all. Maybe we'll have to get used to that, that the expense of time to make things to repair things and the cost to replace them is going to be harder and harder. Unfortunately, at the cost of many jobs for many desperately poor workers, mostly women in factories on the other side of the world.
1: You bring up a really good point because my mom used to say, when I was growing up, the mini skirts came back in and she would say, I should have saved my mini skirts. So I always think about that. We have a surprise guest. I see that Paula Dietz has entered the waiting room. Oh, Did somebody oh wow. So this is exciting. I'm going to bring on Paula Dietz.
0: Oh, marvelous. This is a yeah. first on life's accessories. Dude. I know
1: this was happening. Paula, we were just talking about your dress. Was it a gingham dress where you would lean on the elbow when you read the New York Times and it became frayed? Is that right?
3: Yes, the the gingham dress I bought with the patch, and that was one of the reasons I bought it. It was in a thrift shop in Maine. I I thought this was a webinar that I would just come and send to you. <laughs> no, all.
1: you're on it. By the way, Paula, you're on the podcast. Paula, Paula is my dear cousin. She's my mother's cousin, and I will just say this: my mother just idolized Paula growing up, and I um, did your and I feel the same way about Paula and she's been so wonderful to me. And Paula has not met Stephanie yet, my podcast. Hi, Paula. And friend. It's so nice to meet you.
0: This I've heard really a lot wonderful. about you.
1: So this is special. <laughs> we were just talking to Kiki about the book. Can you tell us about your involvement with this project in Smith College just, and the collection? To finish on the
3: gingham dress, which is okay. have have we shown the dress or not? But we any, have not shown the dress. Yes, is a long sleeve, long skirt, house dress. And I found it in a Maine thrift shop, and I wore it for dinner parties in Maine, but I just loved it because it had all that feeling. And then when Kiki began talking about her book and the whole concept of what women wore and that we really are going from the house dress to what women lawyers wear to court today. So I just, this is Kiki's dress. And of course, she does such a brilliant job in bringing all this together
2: say that one of my favorite pieces in the book is the close up on one of the many beautiful photographs a close up of that right arm with the patch of course hand done hand stitched by some frugal smart person a woman, I'm sure, in Maine. And it has a voice, even if I can't hear all the language precisely.
0: Clothing really does tell stories, doesn't it? truly it? does. Paula, Kiki was sharing with us her accessory that she first introduced to us today are her earrings that she's wearing that she made. And speaking of cataloging, because Kiki, you've been, you create all these different amazing earrings. Have you cataloged your earrings And might we see a book of Kiki's earrings? I want that book next.
2: (laughs) Uh, Don't hold your breath. Uh, I'm not Madeline Albright with her brooches, her fabulous brooches. I confess that um, I've done enough Shakespeare plays that I learned very early, you never count how many costumes you've got to get on stage. It's too depressing. You just have to do them. And so as a result, I was thinking this morning, if you talk about your earrings, maybe they'll ask how many you've got. And I have no clue, but I can give you a better answer, a quote from Frances Crow, a major pacifist whose piece is in this book. When she was asked how many times has she been arrested on behalf of her politics, she said, never enough. So you can ask me how many earrings I've got, and I'll say Never enough. Speaking Love of that. accessories,
1: Love that. you and Paula are quite coordinated with your red and black today. Yes, and Paula. I noticed. Are you wearing a pin, some kind of
0: brooch? Right yes, now? I noticed that. Oh, that's very. That is pretty. beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Can you tell it's us about a, that?
3: Yes, it's made by a, a marvelous woman who went off into India to to Kerala, and it's based actually on an architectural motif. India that she remakes into pins this way and her last name is Wiener her father was a wonderful jeweler as well and she inherited actually his technique in Mayhem Rina Wiener and I love to wear it and I only wear it with this jacket and I just leave it on all the time
0: well it looks fabulous
3: fabulous. I love it it doesn't I don't wear red very often but
0: it's the season it suits you it does so I just wear it I I love it I want to go make jewelry this afternoon. I That's what well, I want I, to do. I, I, I want, want to, to get, grab a glue, glue gun and yes, just yeah. start gluing things together. I, I want to get at
1: all my grandmothers and mothers' pins and earrings. And I told Paula this, and I, I keep telling Stephanie about this too. Lately, I'm having a lot of my grandmothers who Paula knew. I'm having a lot of her pins remade into necklaces and earrings and other things that I'll wear more often, which has been there a really you know. interesting project. Yeah. Yep. This has been so much fun to Incredible. speak to you both. Kiki, can you tell our listeners where they can find you online and where they can find the book and learn more about it? The
2: book is available. At, you can order it through any bookstore. Um, you can get it on Amazon as well. But I would, of course, encourage you to get it from your local bookstore.
1: Um, we'll post information about the book yes. in the show notes because it's really Absolutely. wonderful. We want to thank Paula and Kiki for yes. being with us. This was such a
0: fun surprise, Paula, to have you. And it was so wonderful to talk to you, Kiki. It's been the best and such an uplifting time together. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Life Accessories. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate us and get in touch. Thanks for tuning in.